0: janaka dipati saham pati khatanjaliani varam ayachata shanti dasata parajaka jati ka desetudama anukampe mam pajam <speaking in foreign language> <speaking in foreign language> Namo tasa bhagavato arahatova sammasambutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahatova sammasambutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahatova namasami Tonight, I'd like to talk about the ascending zigzag path <laughs> <laughs> to increasingly refined consciousness. Now, <clears throat> I know it's probably a new subject mo- for most of you, but it's always good to go over the basics. Um, <laughs> hey w- was that a good old Minnesota meditation today, or what? Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know. It <laughs> <laughs> a, a good old Minnesota meditation you today. You <laughs> Three and a half hours, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so on every path of practice, we begin at a place of relative delusion, uh, which uh, is good just to recognize that, not judge ourselves too highly, but uh, just recognize that, um, okay, realistically, um, everyone, all, even the even the Buddha himself and all of his great disciples at one point started, um, basically where we are. So, um, it's easy to get it's easy to get absorbed in superficial appearances of things uh, uh, where, uh, you know, kind of the, the glittery nature of things. So uh, if we have a noble aspiration to kind of go beyond that, go beyond um, the glittering, glittering uh, superficial goal-like aspect of existence, then, then uh, even if we're practicing correctly, even if we're really putting our our heart into practice and and, uh, effort is basically uh, going in the right way. It's never going to be an easy, smooth ride. Uh, So if you encounter obstacles, if you encounter uh, difficulties or problems, it's not necessarily a bad sign. Um, It's just been part of the process. This is what I mean by the zigzag nature. It's not a a nice, easy slide. As soon as we start practicing, as soon as... Uh, um, meditation. As soon as we take up sila, samadhi, panya uh, and then everything starts getting better and better and better, and we, every day is more and more happy. And that's a nice theory. <laughs> It'd be nice if it actually happened that way, but first of all, it's not that easy to um, to uh, to keep steady, persistent, right effort. But even if we are, you know, to a, a good degree, uh, like on retreat, certain periods like that, uh, the more we do, often the more we find that it's not necessarily just getting easier and easier, uh, more and more refined, um, you know, there's this zigzag pattern that, that develops, and sometimes, um, you know, it feels like um, uh, we're not getting, or you know, we're kind of stuck on a plateau a bit, but you, know, you just need to uh, keep persisting and not really worry about the efforts. I mean, not really worry about the uh, the results. Just focus on putting forth uh, effort in the right way. The results, um, whatever they are, will come at their own speed. And all we can do is kind of start this this process and keep tending. Tending what what our, is our responsibility to tend? The results are really not our responsibility, but uh, tending each step—that's you know, our responsibility. So, right here, right now, uh, can we take one step, you know, one step up? And uh, and if we can do that, then don't worry about anything else. <clears throat> so, when the Buddha t- teaches, as I m- had mentioned before, he. Will often uh, sum up his whole path of practice in a form of a gradual training, and sometimes it's more. Um, he just goes into some of the basics of it, and uh, other times he enumerates in great detail. So, of this gradual practice, uh, one of the, the most important steps, actually, to to really get the mind going in a, uh, a positive, wholesome way, um, to get it to get momentum going. Um, is generosity. And you can never develop too much uh, um, good karma from generosity. Uh, The word in Pali is dana, and uh, barami is kind of a catch-all term for uh, wholesome qualities of mind that gradually accumulate. So we talk about developing dana, barami. Uh, It's developing like this store of good karma that fuels our practice. And that's really literally... Like the the fuel, which kind of keeps it going, uh, is and if you ever feel dry in your practice, like you're running out of energy, then just find some way to develop dana, give a gift to someone, uh, do some service for someone, try to be helpful to someone else, um, whatever you know. Just just that in itself um, is sort of kickstarts the process. So, I think sometimes in in When Western uh, Theravada or Vipassana circles try to um, appeal to a certain segment of Western population, they'll tend to downplay dana a bit, Um, or well, at least as a practice in and of itself, Uh, or think of it more like, well, that's just you know the the Asians are into dana, but we're into practice. You know, we're really into practice. Whereas uh, the Buddha never made a distinction like that where um, you know, giving uh, is already an important step in the practice because we're giving up something that m- maybe we identify with, something that um, w- maybe we're attached to a little bit, and we have to give it up. And in that process, it starts to, cr- to create a habit which is going to be uh, really useful at every other stage of practice. We get into the habit of, okay, giving up, just, just giving up, giving up, and one of the, the great things about generosity is that old truism, that uh, it's not that it's better to give than to receive, but it's more fun to give than it is to receive. You know, it, it is fun to receive, too. Um, but to give, to really give with an open heart brings up a lot of joy. And often, um, you know, people don't experience that, they might not believe it, but once they start to get into generosity, they can really, you know, um, really understand, you know, firsthand how how blissful it is, how nice it is um, just to live a life that is not self-centered, but, you know, really looking to, how can I help? How can I help someone else? How can I be of service to others? What can I give? <clears throat> Um, Of course, as I mentioned, sometimes this can take um, the shadow side of this, is when people start to uh, calculate, well, you know, if if I give a whole lot of money to this cause or to the monarchy, if I make this big donation, then I'll be reborn in heaven, or then it will cover up my my bad deeds. And this is kind of the shadow side of generosity, which you do see uh, in Thailand sometimes, the biggest donors are uh, donate a lot because they're trying to uh, make up for how the illegal ways that they got the money in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, well, you know, <laughs> if I give, you know, maybe I give twenty five percent of the money, say they'll cover up, you know, all the, the nasty things I done did to get the other seventy five percent. Of course, it uh, it doesn't. Work that way completely. I mean, to be honest, it, it works that way somewhat. You know, anytime there's um, uh, a motivation to give, then there is a um, there is good karma, even if it's even if it's bound up with selfishness. Right? There's still some good karma there because there's an intention uh, to give. However, uh, the good karma that comes from giving would uh, be far more. Pure and efficacious if it's coming from, like, you know, uh, I'm just trying to help. Uh, I'm not in it for myself. I'm not giving as a kind of a karmic deal. You know, I'll give a bit, but of course, you know, I expect uh, tenfold back, you know, later in my life or in my next life. Not like that, but just, just the attitude of giving up, you know, is really uh, uh, what makes it uh, powerful for us in our practice. Um, now, the idea of, of generosity leading to a rebirth in heaven in a future life, again, uh, uh, is poo-pooed a bit by, uh, I think, uh, a lot of teachers in the West as well, that's not the real practice. But in terms of Buddhist cosmology, and uh, certainly as a, a general practice in Asia, there is some uh, Reason behind that—it's not a—it's not a silly practice. Uh, for many people, they do feel like full enlightenment, or even the initial stages of enlightenment, may be out of their reach um, at this stage in their practice. So they look for ways to at least um, develop enough of a foundation that they'll have a a, a rebirth in a, a pleasant realm um, in the future. Now, of course, um, you know the the belief in rebirth is quite. Um, common and solid in uh, um, Buddhist Asian countries, um, but still that 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 pathway or a uh, um, um, a path that's gradually leading to uh, and developing the karmic causes that will lead to uh, higher rebirths in the future uh, is a path of practice that was praised by the by the Buddha. He didn't say it was the highest, um, but um, for for average people, he says, well, that's that is a, a valid form of practice and and realistic a realistic um, goal that, that we can shoot for. Um, certainly, for like in the forest tradition, though, um, you know, it was considered if you were you know, practicing meditation in order to be reborn in heaven, um, you'd kind of get teased by the other monks and you know, say, oh, you're not really in it for the for the real deal, you know, which is really. Um, No rebirth at all. Next, when the Buddha talks about developing a gradual training after uh, foundation and generosity. And it's not like we let generosity go, but we can start with that and then and then keep that habit going through our whole life. Right? But then, in addition to that, we can start refining our sila. Uh, anytime we um, start keeping precepts, it's going to stop us from making, for creating obstacles in our lives. There are times where keeping, say, five precepts are easy and you don't even need to think about it. It's just a natural way to live. But uh, other times, uh, if we haven't made a real commitment to it, then it's just so easy to be influenced and and pulled off in this direction or that direction and then, um, before we know it, we're kind of on the, the downward spiral rather than the... Uh, gradually ascending, zigzag path to more refined consciousness. So sila is, is important to, uh, to, uh, to really establish as a habit in our lives so that it just you know, becomes very deeply ingrained, becomes a natural way to live. When the Buddha talked about the karmic causes to be, be reborn as a human being or to be fully human in this life, Talk about the five precepts. Uh, if we're not actually keeping the five precepts, then um, future uh, future life scenarios get a bit dodgy. Uh, it's not a you know, there's not a, a one-to-one correspondence with um, uh, levels of sila and rebirth, etc. But the 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 more we're dedicated to that level of not just a precept, but, but you know what the precepts represent then uh, that creates a certain uh, stability in the heart, which um, then is going to be a a solid foundation uh, all the way through our practice right to the end. So, talking about the first precept, for example, and of course uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, bless their hearts, um, when they came to the door the other day, they asked do you think there will ever be an end to world violence? <coughs> and uh, probably what what we, what we should have said was, if you keep the Buddhist precepts, <laughs> if you keep the good, you're a good Buddhist. <laughs> if everyone was a good Buddhist, then there would be an end to world violence, yes. <coughs> um, but uh, But it was a bit... They were sent over here as a joke by, by John's cousin. He got a twisted sense of humor. He said, Oh, yeah, if you go to that cabin, I'm sure there's going to be some people who will be you know, very receptive. Um, which also brings up an interesting question. In in terms of, now many religious belief systems in the world are called belief systems because they focus mainly on belief as their security for the next life. So this is a a long-standing issue with human beings is after we die, then what happens? And people like to... um, uh, Feel secure that it's going to be a positive thing, <laughs> and uh, and even better than that is that it's going to be eternal. So there's a lot at stake, and that's of course why um, religions tend to argue a lot about it, and in the process probably create so much bad karma that they're not actually going to go to hell, or not actually going to heaven um, because of all the conflict they create. However, um, uh, belief in Buddhism is not, some, it's not a key factor. It plays a role, um, but it's not the key factor in determining, for example, where we're going to be reborn, are we going to go to heaven, hell, um, born as it goes, whatever, uh, in the next life. Um, belief uh can assist us in the sense that it can maybe uh if it's an accurate belief it can kind of get us going in the right direction but then our own personal experience will override a belief, right will either verify it or or not, you know, depending on what we see as true for ourselves. So for example, we don't really know if the Buddha existed or if he was enlightened. But there's a certain kind of trust or belief, you know, at least uh, at least to a certain degree, uh, that he was. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't um, put so much effort in, in this practice and pay you know, close attention and trust his teachings. Uh, so that type of belief, you know, does play a role in Buddhism, but it's certainly uh, a small factor compared to our behavior, our actual, you know. Uh, our intentional acts, uh, what we say that arises from intention, even our thoughts. All of our intentions, what motivates us, uh, that's really going to be what determines um, the, the future, uh, both in this lifetime and the next. So belief uh, doesn't play such a, a, uh, a key role uh, because even if you hold a wrong belief, and you're practicing correctly, then, you know, if you're really doing it with integrity, then at some point you may have to admit that, wait a minute, this belief doesn't seem to uh, correlate with my own personal experience. I may have to question whether that's actually true or not. And so um, beliefs can overcome themselves uh, if they're inaccurate or gradually become more accurate. And often it's, uh, you hear from people who uh, have attained uh, to the at least the first level of enlightenment. It's really at that stage. Then they know for sure. Yes, you know, there there was a Buddha. Uh, what he taught is true. There is enlightenment. But before that, you, know, you still have to take the, everything with a grain of salt. <coughs> With the foundation of dana and sila, then we can really start to get into the area of bhavana. Bhavana refers to mental cultivation, and this is uh, where the refining of consciousness um, can um, start to exponentially um, become uh, more and more, uh, um, more and more pure. Right, so. Uh, one of the things that I haven't spoken about yet are uh, nimittas. When the mind starts to become uh, a bit peaceful, uh, certain um, phenomena can start to happen in meditation, uh, which in Pali we call nimitta. In English, we often refer to that as a sign. Or that's a translation we use uh, for the word nimitta, and uh, I mean <clears throat> it's it's not a it's not a perfect translation, but uh, often. If you see the word uh, sign or the signless, that's referring to the Pali word nimitta. So if, you, um, if you're sitting meditation, for example, and um, certain colors start coming up in your meditation, certain kind of lights, maybe things moving around a bit, that uh, would be considered a nimitta, but that's something that you can just ignore. Safely ignore. It's going to be a distraction. Uh, it's not going to assist you. It may be a sign that uh, there's some uh, tranquility being developed in your meditation, but that's just a, uh, kind of a, a byproduct and really a useless byproduct of that. Uh, so it's easy to become distracted, say, Wow, that's pretty, that's interesting. Uh, but then that takes your attention off the meditation object. And then, of course, you know. The reason they arose was because of the cause of paying attention with continuity to your meditation, and then once we take our attention off and start looking at the bright lights, the whole thing starts to fall apart a bit. So it's better just to ignore it, say whatever happens is fine. Now other things that can happen, for example, um, you might actually start to get uh, visions, you know, like pictures, and and, uh, you wonder, you know, uh, is this actually going to happen in the future? Uh, it's like a scenario of the future. You think you're seeing the future, uh, whatnot. Um, just keep in mind that, uh, again, this anyth- anything like that is totally unsure. Uh, you just, yeah, I know, it, you know, it'd be nice to, to know. Uh, you want to be sure if you know a, a vision of the future is is accurate or not. But it's better just to. Um, take the standard that everything is unsure, unsure. Uh, Other things that can arise, sometimes you get sensations in the body, uh, perceptions, for example, that the body's very large or small, um, um, different shapes, uh, distorted, uh, or or just kind of feelings in the body, sometimes feeling light, sometimes feeling heavy. Uh, All of these are, again, just... Just ignore them, you know, it's, uh, they're just kind of part of byproducts of meditation, but nothing that we would really need to take all that seriously. In fact, it's only if we do take it seriously that it might become an obstacle in itself. Uh, and we might get excited by it, take, you know, it becomes a distraction, uh, or, or a vision arises that's a bit unusual, strange, frightening, it brings out fear, or, and then that can be an obstacle. But in and of itself, all of this phenomena, you just safely discard it uh, and just keep on with the meditation. Uh, One of the interesting things that does seem to arise sometime uh, when the mind starts to go a bit peaceful and you make a a certain um, determination and you think, what's tomorrow's lottery number? And then the number comes up. And... um, is uh, obviously monks who can do this are very popular. <laughs> and in Thailand, especially, you have to be careful as a monk because people will kind of um, they'll try to trick you into saying certain numbers, and then they'll go place those numbers on the lottery and say, "Oh, Ajahn, hmm, how many years have you been a monk? What's your age?" Um, etc. They'll try to get numbers off of you. Uh, <laughs> or they say, oh, I did you have a good dream last night? Or any numbers coming up? If they're really, uh, that's if they're more subtle. If they're straightforward, they just say, do you know what the lottery number is for tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> and there are monks who can actually um, predict, you know, with some degree of accuracy, what the lottery number is. Um, but that type of uh, simple knowledge that uh, is also unsure, and it doesn't often last for very long. They may uh, may get a valid number, you know, in their meditation that actually works, but then um, once their ego starts getting involved in it, etc., then the whole thing can fall apart. So, all of that, all of those signs, uh, it's better just to keep the standard of not being sure. Now, there are different types of meanings that can come with these nimitta. Now, some nimitta are actually very helpful. Uh, So the first uh, type of meaning uh, that I was referring to, more of the useless, uh, distracting type. Uh, But then there are uh, uh, nimittas, which are, are indi- indicate uh, more advanced stages of samadhi or meditation, and I'll talk about those a bit later. And at certain stages, they can then be taken as a meditation object and that will uh, be very helpful. And it is a sort of a, a natural part of the mind going deeper and deeper. And then there are also insight nimittas, which uh, more rarely arise. But for someone who already has a very good samadhi, within that sometimes an object of meditation or a vision will arise. Uh, for example, this happened with Ajahn Man. At some point in his practice, it was already fairly advanced, but then at some point, vision arose of um, uh, a corpse in some state of decomposition. And, and he knew that... At the, from that point on, that nimitta was going to be his meditation object. And, uh, and that was um, the, the, medit- the nimitta then which would uh, lead to the deepening of his wisdom. Okay. Um. Um, one of the reasons that we went out on the lake this afternoon and did uh, floating meditation in quiet, serene corners of the lake was uh, often people do experience um, certain types of samadhi or tranquility or inner peace when they're out in nature. And it's uh, sometimes for some people it can happen more easily than if they're really trying in meditation, because maybe there's a bit too much self happening in meditation, um, you're making that effort, which is all good. But then uh, sometimes it happens we just go, go saying you know um, we're sitting down underneath a tree or we're next to a stream, or we're listening to the sounds of the birds, and there's no pressure. It's like we're not meditating, quote-unquote meditating, we're just sitting there and uh, especially if we do meditate on a regular basis, it's like all of the, the causes and conditions may be there and then we just need to kind of get the self out of the way and, and things come into a balance and the mind can uh, become quite peaceful. And for many people, even who've never meditated before, that's their initial experience Of real inner peace, and that can give them a perspective then on everything else in life. Uh, Once you, once you, once you see that, well, it's actually possible for me to be, to be peaceful, or not to be dominated by endless trains of thought. Then we know that at least that's possible, and. Uh, You know that can help kind of reorient our priorities in life. Uh, For many people, they uh, when they start to go into like a basic state of samadhi, what we would call upajara samadhi, which I explained before, a type of samadhi where um, feeling very mind is very still, and yet we're still seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thoughts can still arise, but that even when thoughts arise, they don't shake the basic stillness of the mind. Uh, so often if people have an experience like this, being out in nature, then they might call it a mystical experience, they might refer to it as you know um, their great spiritual awakening, or they might interpret it as, you know, I've been in God's presence, uh, i felt God, whatever, people... Uh, can interpret it in different ways depending on what they project on it, um, but I would just say it's uh, it's just uh, beginning stages of samadhi, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but it's good, you know. People, if 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 people realize that and, and start to see well, this is the potential, and then take that and start to systematically develop it, um, like when I was in college. I I had certain experiences of um, feeling very um, peaceful out in nature, having certain insights. Um, But at some stage I knew if I wanted to uh, take that deeper, I was going to have to do it in a more traditional way, uh, really apply myself Mm -hmm. to a more systematic, uh, traditional (coughs) form of developing meditation. One of the benefits of when (coughs) we experience even a little peace is that we start to recognize how misleading thoughts are. (coughs) Um, Where before that, maybe we place a lot of trust in our own thoughts. And when there's a certain clarity that goes beyond (coughs) thinking, uh, then it becomes easier to see how Unsure, how misleading, how misgiven, all of our thoughts are, and often it's an experience like that, which will start someone on the on a path of contemplation. Um, for example, you know, like I was saying when I was in, in college, um, often it was <coughs> some of those early experiences, just being out in nature, that really made me start to wonder what it's all about. And uh, that kind of fuel this whole uh, process of I yeah, really, really start to wonder, um, you know, what—not uh, the meaning of life, but you know, wonder uh, what is a human potential, or what is um, what is really going to make me or anyone else happy in life, um, rather than just kind of buying into social norms. And I know for myself, the more I began to wonder about some of those things, the more I began to wander, in the sense of wandering on a, uh, starting a journey. And, um, you know, this is often, you know, uh, whether, you, whether it's a physical wandering or a uh, spiritual wandering, but starting a, a, a journey which you feel like, you know, in the midst of this um, uncertain and quite ambiguous and um, often a frightening world, uh, is, there, is there a path of practice which actually is going to uh, give some real deep satisfaction? <clears throat> and at that time, when I was looking... At Western society, and um, you know, I started to get the feeling that maybe what I was looking for wasn't going to be mainly answered within my traditional society. Um, it wasn't that you know any. It wasn't that it couldn't be done. It's just that you know, when I really started to to look at uh, the West and many of the, um, the general standards of what was considered uh, normal, considered good, considered uh, to be successful, I started to realize that, um, well, actually, maybe a, uh, a lot of those uh, would be... Well, I was, I was more inclined towards the Asian way of looking at things. And that uh, kind of developed a certain uh, sense of uh, spirit, you know, kind of wanting to wanting to leave or wanting to leave being imprisoned in a certain narrow spectrum of what is considered normal. <coughs> and, uh, you know, initially it was, well, you know, 25 years ago it was pretty radical to walk around dressed like this. Uh, these days um, it's Still somewhat radical, but uh, you know, considered a, a, a valid alternative lifestyle now, even by you know uh, conservative Lutherans in northern Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> one, the, one their acceptance. I haven't won over the Jehovah's Witnesses yet, but we'll work on that. <laughs> But if you ever experience this sense of um, meaninglessness in modern society, these days it's not just the West because it's global, but you know, i say 25 years ago or, or so when I was looking at it, the West tend to symbolize more uh, what we think of as modern society. And, and um, there, there, it was felt there was a certain meaninglessness in it or, uh, at least not, at least it wasn't going to give what it promised. And then when that feeling arose, there was a certain, uh, uh, a wish to uh, escape that, escape that, get out of that groove or, or actually leave. And, uh, that's, that can be a very wholesome movement of the heart, um, it's like when the when the Buddha got out of his palace and started to see the reality of what was happening in the villages. Basic truths, old age, sickness, death. And then saw a wandering ascetic as an alternative. There arose in his heart this sense of uh, a wish uh, to leave. And in Pali, when we talk about ordination as a novice, it's called the home leaving. You know, one who is... One who is uh, Uh, ordained and and left the home life. And a certain amount of mm, in Pali it's called sangwega or, or just being tired. Kind of being tired of the same old stuff and it's not really giving what it's what it promises. And uh you're just feeling kind of, you want to turn away from that. Or the word nibita, which um, is, is even stronger, which comes from a certain amount of insight into the way things are, uh, not just Western or Eastern society or any society, but just the nature of samsara itself. It's always going to be this way, and then there's a certain feeling of, um, you know, kind of fed up with it. Fed up in a wholesome way not fed up in a way that you want to uh, run away out of a sense of aversion or rejection, but if it's rejection, it's a wise rejection. It's rejection for the right reasons. And, uh, and this is, is praiseworthy. And so if that feeling starts to arise sometimes that, yeah, actually, you know, my spirit's kind of calling out for leaving, then it's okay. Uh, uh, pay that some attention. Don't just think it's a, it's a crazy thought. One of the reasons that I ended up in the forest tradition was that I always felt that trees were one of my main teachers. I uh, could always learn a lot from trees. I'm still learning a lot from trees. I used to learn from trees that were growing in the forest. Uh, now I'm learning a lot about trees, uh, planting them, and watching them grow, and, and they tend to exhibit a lot of the same things that we do in our spiritual life when our, when our when our minds grow, or or die, sometimes. And uh, so, so sometimes when um, you know in our thoughts, you know it just becomes a bit too too complicated, or um, it just seems like either in our own heads or in in our external circumstances. Uh, it seems like there's just like a smoke screen if you can just see through that or just get back to the simplicity of nature going out uh, with the trees or what trees symbolize, and often that can help to just cut through a lot of the, uh, a lot of the uh, things that the cloud or, or, or create kind of a smoke screen in our life. <coughs> And one of the one of the things which then uh, did you know kind of push me over the edge in terms of dedicating uh, or wanting to dedicate my life and continuing to dedicate my life to practicing uh, the teachings of the Buddha was the words of those who really do seem to see and understand and uh, this is helpful because we go through times. I've certainly been through times where I don't see things clearly. I don't understand things clearly, and uh, it's important to hear, you know, sometimes the, the voices. You know, the voice of of people who who can speak with with clarity and say, "No, this this is the way it is. This is what you need to do. Uh, you know, do this." And this is the result. So I've been very fortunate to spend time with teachers, uh, mainly in Asia. In terms of um, teachers in the world, still the major league is pretty much still in in Asia. As far as I, as far as I'm aware of, uh, Thailand probably still has probably the the greatest number of uh, major leaguers. Uh, <laughs> the, the home run heroes, <laughs> the uh, the all stars, but uh, um, but as we you know develop um, here in the West, it's it, it's good to try to create the conditions uh, so that in the future things will really take take root in this society as well. So, wherever we find ourselves in the present, then if there's a voice, you know, kind of whispering in your ears, not a psychotic voice, but you know, a voice of wisdom that's kind of whispering in your ears, that uh, um, soon, if we all have a, a sincere aspiration, then uh, the words of the Buddha can lead us to liberation. And when we talk about liberation, it can seem a bit pie-in-the-sky, but it really is something which is very reasonable, uh, rational. Um, you can kind of... Uh, it's not it's not clouded in mysticism, but uh, it's something which, even if we haven't experienced yet, It makes sense. And that's one of the things which I really appreciate uh, and gives me confidence in the teachings, is that they do seem to make sense, even though those stages that uh, I haven't seen for myself. When we talk about liberation, image that comes to mind is when the Buddha was enlightened at dawn. Buddha sitting underneath a tree, of course, and then a new day begins in the dawn, and with the arising of the, of the, the dawn star, uh, the Buddha attained his full awakening after practicing all night long. It wasn't that he just had a good sleep, and then woke up and he was enlightened. No, he was practicing all night long after, uh, after many, many years of intense practice and after many, many eons of, of full-on, dedicated practice. But it does take a certain amount of long-standing patient endurance. Right? And um, as far as qualities to... Uh, to develop, which will be really helpful in anything we do in life, along with uh, generosity, patient endurance, uh, just being patient and and uh, you know, in- enduring, but not with a sense of uh, greeting your teeth, but in- enduring by just, just watching, being spacious enough to say, okay, I can take this, All Right. I can take this. I don't have to react in an unwholesome way. And um, this, you know, uh, this patient endurance will just allow us to to really stick with it for the long haul and really stand uh, strong for a long time. And it was one of Ajahn Chah's main teachings. You know, you know, instead of you know, focusing on the details of a meditation technique, he saw what really what really worked for people was those people who were able to develop patient endurance were able to take whatever meditation technique they were working on and and take it deeply. And one of the things which um, is very endearing about Ajan Chah and many of the Teachers of his generation was there was so much joy in their lives. Uh, Ajahn Chah was prone to laughter, Uh, and a lot of the four sajans that I've lived with, um, they are very joyful people. They 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 love to laugh, or laughter just arises a lot because they're they're just very happy people. And uh, sometimes you know the path of practice can seem pretty serious because you want to be serious about it. You don't want to be just flighty or not take it seriously, but um, there's just a balance in that too. Because when we uh, take it too seriously, then uh, a certain heaviness can set in, or even a tension or stress. Um, And often what can help to create samadhi, allow the body and mind to really relax is just allowing sense of happiness and joy to come up, uh, allowing yourself to laugh. Um, sometimes, sometimes I like to laugh too, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I and I feel good about it because there's a certain release about it, and. Uh, you know, a lot of the the teachers that I've known in Thailand, um, they are very joyful people, and there's a lot of laughter in the forest. Uh, I Part of it, I think, it is is uh, you know uh, culturally conditioned because Thais like to laugh a lot, anyways, even the unenlightened ones. Uh, <laughs> but but I think part of it is that you know when the mind really sets down a lot of burdens, then it's easy to laugh. In this connection with with nature, one of the things that is said a lot in the forest tradition is that the Buddha was born in the forest he was enlightened under a tree he lived in the forest and practiced in the forest after his enlightenment and he passed away in the forest and so there was this uh, a deep connection with nature and it wasn't the fact that you know, once he got enlightened then he went he moved you know, he moved to New York and kind of got famous, where there was kind of more um, opportunity for media exposure. <laughs> right? It was like even once once he he, he uh, had attained enlightenment, he still lived in the forest. He still uh, maintained that connection with nature. And there are suttas where he talks about, you know, why does it why does he do that? Why does he keep practicing and meditating and living in seclusion? and one of the, one of the reasons was because it's just pleasant, I mean the Buddha liked nature and but another reason was as an example for future generations. Now the Buddha, after enlightenment, he could have he could have moved to um, uh, Benares and and just taught there and had a comfortable room next to the burning Ghats or something like that but uh he wanted to live a lifestyle which would then be an example for future generations because often that is what would pick up on most is how a person actually lived. Um, and the sense of uh, being joyful in nature, um, You know, it, it's not something that's just like a, a nice side dish but but joy happiness they're indispensable qualities on the path to enlightenment when you look at the the factors of enlightenment what the, is joy you know piti, Uh just uh, the mind being suffused with this um, pleasant pleasant physical and mental feelings and and that's a good thing it's not something that you have to Fear by getting attached to, you know, or if any joy starts to rise in your practice, oh, whoa, watch out! You can get attached to that. Uh, no, you want to allow that to come up. That's a that's a natural result of the mind becoming more still, more tranquil, uh, and seeing more clearly. As soon as if we understand life more clearly, it's natural that our burdens start to drop, uh, start to feel lighter. Joy starts to rise, and then we can. Uh, develop that and take it more and more deeply. So then things like joy and happiness become very important factors in developing uh, more advanced stages of the practice, more advanced stages of um, developing samadhi. The uh, One of the main causes for samadhi to really come together is happiness. You know? If we're stressed out, and, and even if we're putting a lot of time in meditation, if we're kind of if we're not happy, then it's difficult for samadhi to arise. Right? So um, it's okay to be happy, and often if if we if we allow that, then the mind can find a balance. And once it finds that balance, then clarity starts to come, and we start to see things as they truly are. But it does take um, some long-standing patient endurance, and. Um, there's no real getting around that, just have to stick with it. Um, path of practice often reminds me of weeding at uh, our monastery in New Zealand. Uh, one of the things that we ha- have to do every springtime uh, is, uh, is this kind of cleanup of the landscaping and. And so I go there and I inherit this piece of property and it's just absolutely full of all manner of invasive weeds. So weeding has become a major simile for my practice and for a lot of other people as well, whether they, whether they intended it or not. Um, they'll never forget the weeds. Because, you know, when I really look at it, say, well, um, you've got the plants that you want to encourage, and then you've got the so-called weeds. Now, first of all, how do you decide which, are, which is which? So well, you know, mainly because certain ones are invasive or they're harmful in some way, um, so we designate them as weeds. <coughs> okay, fine. And, and uh, sometimes there are actually legal responsibilities, so we designate those as weeds. But that's very much in the, like our minds with wholesome and unwholesome states. You know, A basic practice, even if you don't meditate at all, if you just do the practice of watching and looking after and encouraging wholesome states of mind and discouraging or pulling out the weeds of unwholesome states of mind, then that is right effort. And that can, can, you can practice that all the time, anywhere in any activity but it's interesting with weeds is uh, initially people don't see them. I mean I can go in, I can take a new person to the monastery and say okay um, you know there's thistles and ragwort and, and uh, blackberry over in this area and maybe just work on those and they'll look around and they don't, they don't actually see it. Uh, it's because their, their their sight or their perception is not attuned to actually spotting them in the grass or, or the foliage. Which is interesting, you know, if you're taking weeds as a simile for defilements, because the same thing happens in our own mind. You know, someone says, oh, well, uh, you know, don't allow irritation or, or states of greed uh, or selfishness to uh, arise in your mind. They're unwholesome states of mind, and and, you know, you don't encourage them. And if they arise, you know, do what you can do allow them to cease. And people are like, yeah, I don't see any. <laughs> 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 you know, maybe, other people are like, look, man, you are like totally filled with greed, hatred, and delusion. And But in our own minds, we're like, yeah, looks, looks clean to me. Yeah, I don't see any weeds here. Um, job's finished. <laughs> so, that's just a sign we're really deluded. <laughs> and we're so deluded that we our perceptions can't even pick up on what we need to do to start the process of, of cleaning up the weeds. Uh, so... Being able to actually see the weeds is, is an important step in our practice. And then the, the persistence of sticking with it. Um, I know initially when we moved to that property, just whole entire hillsides were nothing but weeds. Uh, it seemed overwhelming. It seemed impossible. But every year, you know, we stuck with it. You know, we just did as much as we could. And didn't uh, never gave up. And now there's huge areas of the monastery which are totally weed-free. And then there's other areas that are getting that way. You know, the thing about weeds, just like defilements, is that you can get a whole field completely weed-free, absolutely nice and clean, and then after a month, you know, they start coming up again. And it's the same thing in our minds. When, um, you know, we can kind of really work on, on eradicating or, or purifying certain unwholesome or unhelpful traits, and, uh, and it may look really good for a while, but if we haven't actually dug the roots out, then they're just going to start popping back up again. Uh, it may take some time, but as long as the, the roots are there, they'll start to grow again. And so, like with weeding you know you, it's like okay one year everything's clean and next year, maybe twenty percent pops up of what of what was there the previous year you can't just ignore that otherwise they're all going to come back again It's the same thing with with uh, our own minds you know uh, like for for years we may gonna kind of really be practicing diligently and then um, kind of uh, reach a certain level and then stop putting so much effort in, and for a while we can kind of coast and it's almost conducive to, to becoming overconfident, but then but then uh, we'd start coming up again in our minds and, uh, and then if we don't continue the practice um, they'll start multiplying sending seeds, and before you know it, everything's covered with weeds again. So the same thing happens uh, in the field as it does in the field of our own consciousness. So generally, you know, we talk about these two paths that we can go by, um, path of, of the world and path of Dhamma. And they are uh, going in opposite directions, in the same way that wholesome and unwholesome mind states are are incompatible. And yet, in the long run, or in the big picture, um, although they, you know, we we really try to focus on on one in in the present, usually it's a mixture. You know, it's uh, we have to do the best we can to try to um, uh, be realistic and keep right effort going. But, you know, even if we are very sincere, we're not going to be able to totally, all the time, be on the path of the Dhamma. There's going to be worldly tendencies. They're going to come in. Uh, and and, we, and that's that's just being realistic. So, if we can watch that process carefully, then we can catch ourselves. And that's one of the the, uh, the most important things. It's like weeds, worldly tendencies. If we don't recognize them, if we don't, if we don't see the the potential harm, then then uh, we'll just go ahead and act on it, right? Um, because we, you know, just follow our habits. But uh, actually recognizing, saying, "Oh, that is what's referred to." As the world and, uh, and what is what is the response that the Buddha would take you know? what is the Dhamma response and that's an ongoing uh, beneficial contemplation right? you just keep contemplating and, and that and and, um, and the only way that we can really know how the Buddha would respond or what the way of Dhamma is is one to go kind on of an ongoing reading of suttas and and reliable, uh, hearing reliable teachings, but also uh, just ongoing uh, looking with sincerity into our own lives. So the mind is very fickle and uh, subject to change. And of course, you know, in the process of this long uh, zigzag path, sometimes it's an ascending zigzag path. Uh, Other times, maybe descending but uh, there is time to change you know the road that we're on you know no matter how bad it gets uh, no matter how uh, rock bottom it might reach at certain points it's never impossible to change you know the path uh, that we're on nothing's fixed which is uh, the positive side of impermanence so um, even the times where it seems um, despairing, you know, conducive to uh, despairing or feeling hopeless, um, just give something. Right? Yeah, you know, if nothing else, just just kind of force yourself to 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 develop generosity somehow. You know, give something to someone, give a gift, uh, help someone else out, and then uh, that can and change the road, change the path that we're on at that particular moment. So when um, When the Buddha's calling to follow in his footsteps, then, you know, and, and kind of join him in that sense, then, um, you know, his own example of becoming enlightened was basically paying attention, paying close attention to the wind element, anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. and uh, just kind of listening to that wind within our own body. Right? It sounds deceptively simple. And you think, well, how, how can something so uh, as simple as that be deeply liberating? In and of itself, uh it can it can work on uh, healing levels of the mind far below the conscious intellect right. so that's one of the benefits uh, it uh, you know, areas where you simply cannot psychoanalyze or areas which do seem to be very hardwired anapanasati uh, is... However, it works is able to kind of reach down in a a kind of a pre-verbal or non-verbal level of the mind, and some real important healing can happen there. Also, the Buddha uh, would use the um, the wind element, or the you know paying attention to the breath, all the way to the very end of insight. It was not just a meditation technique for developing samadhi, but for developing um, knowledge. You know, in talking when he described the process of anapanasati, he talked about sixteen different steps traditionally, and the last four are all about insight. You know, with each breath, is uh, is just noticing how each breath is is constantly changing. You know, sensation after sensation, and each Sensation of breath constantly falling away, disappearing, falling away, disappearing, and and then knowledge arises, or sort of a deep feeling arises that, well, in the same way the breath does that, all other things in the universe are basically of the same nature, and then they too, you know, constantly ceasing, and then a, a deep version of this sense of. Um, Nibita, or, or turning away, or you know, really wanting to set things down, starts to to come in. It's not something you can force, but just through seeing clearly, it tends to happen. So, in this way, this um, ascending path of increasingly refined consciousness. Can happen just uh, on the wind. It's like it's, it's riding on the wind. And uh, from very basic states all the way to, to full enlightenment. So uh, that's one reason why anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, is uh, generally taught as a, a main focus of meditation. But in addition to that, you can develop many other side types of meditation which will help to keep the mind in balance. As we um, develop this practice of this lifestyle, uh, as the months go by, as the years go by, then in addition to um, the benefits, it's also good to watch out for uh, the shadow side or blind spots that can arise. And that's why it can be helpful to practice with teachers and practice with Sangha members in order to get some feedback. Because as certain aspects of the mind become very refined, certain blind spots can also become very refined. And um, by their very nature, we need to rely on Kalyanamita or other people uh, to be able to illuminate them. If one one has a lot of integrity and one will you know, try to root them out ourselves. Keep looking. You know, am I, do I have blind spots, or where are my blind spots? Or, you know, if suddenly uh, things happen in life, uh, you know, flare-ups or whatever happen in life. Say, well, how did that happen? Where did that come from? If it seemed to jump out of nowhere, well, maybe, maybe it's because we've got some areas that we haven't been addressing. <clears throat> developing this uh, path, working with blind spots really always comes back to uh, this question of self or soul. And just to mention uh, a bit about the origin of that. In, uh, even in ancient India m- uh, the majority of the uh, more advanced spiritual traditions would recognize that, you know, our, our true self is not our body. That comes and goes. Um, it's not our thoughts because they're fickle and changeable, and they go, and perceptions, and etc. But there was this idea that with within the five khandas, within somewhere within this body and mind, or surrounding it, or encompassing it, or somehow around it, was something that was Unchanging, and this was an assumption that it was there, and then this unchanging nature was the one thing you could rely on, yeah? you, and we you call it self. The uh, polytone was Ata. So the the main feature of the Buddhist teaching, which differentiated it from other teaching in his time was anatta, or the refutation that there is anything that's unchanging. <clears throat> and this is uh, this is really the doctrine of of no self, non-self, and that's why it's so key. Do you know why Buddhist musicians are no good at playing rhythm and blues? Because they, they, got no soul, man. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> but as a, as a guide on the path, then uh it's important to listen to your um, listen to your heart or refer to it as intuitive knowing or uh, just like the voice that, that we know you know kind of know we know in our heart you know that that something feels right and then have enough trust to be able to follow in that and I had mentioned earlier about nimittas and types of nimittas. And when the mind does become more calm, then another type of nimitta arises, which is not a flashing bright light or distraction, but more like a a steady, clear light, a bright light. And initially, even that, it's good just to allow it to be there, but not to be distracted by it. Just keep staying with your meditation. But uh, it's kind of white light. Um, they can get stronger and stronger and stronger. At some point, if we're developing meditation correctly, more and more refined levels, then the breath will nearly disappear, or other aspects of practice, whether if you're repeating a word, that will naturally cease by itself. The mind's just become so refined that it's too coarse to actually mentally repeat buto, right? And and then by that time, often, uh, you know, this nimitta manifests as a, a bright or white light, and then you can take that as your meditation object. Once it's uh, very steady, and uh, beautiful, and attractive uh, to the mind, and conducive to joy, then. That's a very good sign. That's a sign that you can really focus on and zoom in on that. Uh, just allow it to, to be there and then and uh, encourage it. Kind of allow consciousness to, to delve into it and that will um, lead to deeper and steeper states of samadhi. when we talk about right samadhi or sama samadhi of the Noble Eightfold Path, then it's almost always described as the jhanas uh, or absorption. So, at some point, it's possible that when the mind is very, very bright, that the, the, that which is being aware and is watching will be able to kind of unify with this white light. Right? And... Then, uh, if you ever experience a state like that, and the thought arises, "Is this jhana?" <laughs> then <laughs> it's not. <laughs> 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 but, but if it really happens, then it's very, very clear awareness, uh, bright, spacious, of like infinite consciousness, and. Just allow the mind to rest there. I mean, it will, uh, intentions can't arise, thoughts can't arise. Uh, you can't control it, so you can't, in that state, you can't say, you know, now I'm going to end it or whatever. But it will, it will naturally come to a conclusion. Uh, so, if that happens, then um, you know, consider that as a, as a very good sign. And then uh, take that clarity from that and continue on investigating, because the mind will be very powerful after that. It's like uh, come off, come out of a deep state of samadhi, and uh, it's like everything's golden, everything's turned to gold, you know, very bright, you know, very, uh, uh, very beautiful. And so at at this stage. You know, when the mind is, has come out of samadhi at whatever level, it's like perception is, is purified, at least temporarily, to a certain degree. And then it's like if we, if we listen very hard, if we listen very clearly, if we really pay close attention, then uh, wisdom starts to arise. That's where insight can really begin to happen. when we uh, talk about, you know, about a quest for a meeting or, or trying to understand things as they truly are, now this is where uh, truth you know, can, can uh, finally arise at last, finally get some insight into what is actually true and what isn't. Huh? So it's when we, we pay very, very close attention and the mind is not distracted then it's like uh, the the truth starts to become apparent to us. You know, finally, at last. Now, when the mind is actually in a state of samadhi like that, you know, when it's absorption, then that's what we call uh, the mind being unified. Uh, so the subject-object relationship drops away. So that's where. Uh, uh, if we talk about unity or all things being one, you know, all is one, uh, then uh, you know, it can be uh, referring to that level of samadhi. And there are, I think, you know, some spiritual traditions where that's considered the, the culmination of the path. Because it's, it is so powerful, it's, it has such a purifying effect on the mind. That it will um, suppress in a wholesome way defilements and hindrances for a long time. So the mind just feels radiant, pure, and things seem very clear. But when the mind is actually in that state, you know, when when it's just one, like everything, all is one, huh? and one is all, then one cannot actually investigate. You can't actually use the mind. To develop wisdom, but coming out of that state, that is when it uh, it's still like rock solid. But then it's able to suddenly see again, hear again. Uh, thoughts can arise again, although to be honest, there probably won't be a lot of thinking happening. But you know, you can still cognize if you want to, and uh, so the senses are functioning again. Yet the mind is is still. You know, solid as a rock, uh, but it's kind of rolling through the senses, and that's where insight can really be developed deeply. So this is the this is basically how uh, how an enlightenment happens, and it can take place in, in gradual increments. It's not like we develop samadhi for years and years, and then suddenly you, you develop insight. But realistically, you know, to whatever degree our mind becomes peaceful, when we come out of that state and use it to investigate, to look, to try to understand. That will uh, lead to a certain amount of letting go, which leads to more peace, which means the, the samadhi becomes easier and easier to develop, which gives us more strength, more clarity, uh, more oomph for developing insight. And then the whole process really starts to get going. So the um, the unification aspect of the mind is very very powerful, but it's it's not the uh, the ultimate. And um, if we want to use the the rock simile, then uh, you know. Jhana is like, Jhana is like. It's not just like a rock saw It's like a boulder, you know, that that's there. I mean, it's like immovable. Uh, but if you had the means to to lift the boulder off, then the grass or the weeds are going to start growing again. So I think as long as the boulder's there, it's going to suppress any uh, unwholesome states of mind from developing. But as soon as that uh, that practice ceases or the karmic effect and that samadhi starts to wear off then the weeds are going to start coming back up again so it's only a temporary solution although it's, uh, it's not one that can really be skipped over. But then uh, if you're able to take jhana and then go back into and this level of upajara samadhi, where the mind is is still rock solid, but kind of rolling through the senses, and then uh, keep investigating. What happens is that the uh, mind becomes like a mountain, like a solid mountain. Often they talk about in the scriptures just, just uh, not just rock solid, but you know, like a mountain of solid rock, um, because it becomes totally immovable. Uh, Once you're able to, with wisdom, eradicate the roots of all the weeds, then there's there's nothing that can shake the mind anymore. So I want to leave you with this quote. There was one time where the Buddha looked at his uh, his right hand disciple, Sariputta. there, in the jetic robe, and I uh, saw Sariputta meditating, and uh, he could see, you know, he could see the, the, the quality of Sariputta's mind, and then there was this uh, quote that was attributed to the Buddha on that occasion. He said, like a mountain of solid rock, standing firm and unshakable. So too for one who has destroyed delusion is like a mountain, unperturbed. So I leave you with that. Thank you for listening.